1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network. I am your host, Lee Pierce, they and she pronouns. I'm up in New York today, very excited to chat with you about. One of the one of the best books I honestly have read, I think, this entire year. And it's been a year, so that's that's saying a lot. And that is uh, Dr. Kevin Quashie's latest book, Black Aliveness or A Poetics of Being. It comes to us from Duke University Press. In Black Aliveness, Dr. Quashie imagines a black world in which one encounters black being as it is, rather than only as it exists in the shadow of anti-black violence. As such, Dr. Quashie makes a case for black aliveness, even in the face of the persistence of death in black life and black study centrally dr kwashi theorizes aliveness through the aesthetics of poetry reading poetic inhabitants and in black feminist literary texts by lucille clifton audre Lorde, june jordan tony morrison evie shockley among many through these explorations he shows how their philosophical and creative thinking constitutes world making and this world making conceptualizes blackness as capacious relational beyond the normative terms of recognition blackness as a condition of oneness Reading for poetic aliveness then becomes a means of exploring Black being rather than non-being and animates the ethical question, how to be. Dr. Quashi offers a Black feminist philosophy of being, which is nothing less than a philosophy of the becoming of the Black world. I am so thrilled to have Dr. Kwasi here to discuss this book, define some of those terms for us, and also read some excerpts from some of these poetry greats, also poets I hadn't heard of, essayists. And talk to us about how those aesthetic forms world make and create black aliveness. And with that, Dr. Kwashi, come on down, tell the listeners who you are and a little bit about this book and what an absolute labor of love it must have been to put these words together so carefully and so uh, evocatively.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Lee, for um, inviting me. And also thank you for the just the body of work you've done in hosting conversations with colleagues. I find this to be so so useful and enriching, especially considering the world we have been in. So I'm a faculty member uh, in the Department of English at Brown University, and this project, Thinking About Aliveness, was really important to me because of all of the ways that the terms of death, both the kind of real-world terms of death, um, become the, the circuits of evidence that we have of of Blackness, the way in which we think and talk about Blackness, and theoretically how ideas of death or ideas of non-being become the the basis on which we think and try to theorize Blackness. And so for me, as I write in the beginning of the book, what would it mean to consider Black aliveness, especially given how readily and literally Blackness is indexed to death? Mm -hmm. To behold such aliveness, we have to imagine a Black world. We have to imagine a Black world to surpass the everywhere and every way of Black death, a Blackness that is understood only through such a vocabulary. This equation of Blackness and death is indisputable and enduring, surely. But if we want to try to conceptualize aliveness, we have to begin somewhere else. And so I think I start with this idea of um, that this is a story of us, right? That this is a story of the black aliveness of the being of us, and I start with that invitation of being in a black world, which is what I think any text—a poem, a song, a novel—does. Is that the the work invites the reader into a world and into a worldview, and so you meet and encounter ideas, people incidents some of those incidents may be violent they may be harming and so on but you are in a world where the being of those people in that world is not of question and so I try to take that as a as a kind of provocation um, and I try to emphasize a specific invitation to a black reader because I think so often in American, uh, literary history uh, or in the American literary imagination, uh, even when reading Black texts, that the reader is presumed to be non-Black, that the audience is there to learn something about the humanity of of Blackness or the humanity of people who are Black. And I think, well, there is nothing to be said about the humanity of any person, certainly of any Black person. That humanity is, and it remains indescribable. Um, And so I I wanted to start with a provocation that would kind of forestall some of that. And uh, that provocation became Imagine a Black World, which is what I think the world of a a text does. So that's one way of beginning, um, beginning to talk about, about this project.
1: Well, and one of the things you – I think what's really interesting is you argue that you primarily focus in the first half of the book on sort of short poems, and then you move into essays and longer forms and a little bit of visual arts. And one of the things you showcase throughout the book is this distinction between oneness – and you say in the conclusion, if I were going to rewrite the book – that this would be a book sort of theorizing oneness but not as identity not as individuality and not as community but just the idea that um that 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 humanity or like what is the human is about one's right to be in oneness and that it's a right specifically refused to black people that you're trying to make central in the book. And so I think that's interesting because I think most of our listeners are going to come to this with a sense of exactly kind of what the book is teasing at, which is, oh, well, when you say exploring oneness or aliveness, you mean individuality.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Or you mean like being in relationship and community. And you're like, no, I'm not really doing that. So could you maybe say a little bit more? Because I think that's an important distinction to parse. And then maybe we could move into um, either more theoretical territory or one of your favorite examples, perhaps the Clifton poem Mm -hmm. with which you open the book.
2: Mm Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you picked up on that. That that idea of oneness, you know, I, I um I've often been reluctant to press hard on that idea of oneness except that the the term one or oneness has both a kind of spiritual or religious resonance as it also has a philosophical resonance um or even just in terms of thinking about grammar, right? That I, you have a lot of expertise in thinking about rhetoric. So that one is the personal, impersonal pronoun, and so there's mm. something at once that is that is undeniable about saying one, but there's also the the, the impersonal of one that makes it close to, and I'm going to use this next word carefully, makes it close to an idea that expresses something about the universality of being. And I want to be careful with universality because I don't mean any normative set of ideas of what a human being is, except to say that when When you say one, you set up a a praxis or a possibility to meditate on what that one feels, thinks, believes, struggles with, um, knows. And I think that idea of the knowing in each one Mm. uh, is very important to me because every human being is of profound intelligence. Every human being is also of profound ordinariness. And I think some some people's intelligence is easily legible and recognized in the way in which they move in the world or produce in the world. And other people's is not. And though I'm here talking about people now in the project, I'm deliberate about saying, well, there's nothing to say about people. There's nothing you can say about human beings that would that for me right that i don't want to talk about human beings cuz what is there to say the whole world of thought could belong to what one might say about human beings so that idea of of the one or of the pronoun one is a pronoun that doesn't get um doesn't become a way in which we think about blackness because blackness is such a term of kind of collective and social imagination and i also you're right i'm careful to not have the idea of One or oneness be collapsed with I or the individual, because this isn't about that kind of corrupt political and social and economic category. It's a dishonest category, really, of individuality, because individuality is not sustainable in a world that is so ordered by the limited choices that racial capitalism offers us, and so on. And so, I'm I'm interested. Maybe the best way, the most efficient way I can say this is. Um, if, if you know the idea of relation and relationality, we often think of relationality as being something about the meeting of one and another one. And what I try to suggest is that, though that may be true in theories of relation, what is also powerful is the potential and the readiness of the one to be met by the world. And what does it mean to focus on the, the openness, the, the capacity of the one to be met by any other person, to be met by the weather, to be, to be in the world means something, in some ways, to be in the world offers us a chance to think about the preparedness of the one to be in the world. So I'm really trying to maybe get at a philosophical or a spiritual notion of oneness that might help us then think more about aliveness.
1: Well, and I I have, I have a really interesting thing I wanted to, which I'm sure you already know, but about how there's no we in this book, Mm. even though we is so fetishized in rhetorical practice, right? We always tell everybody in public speaking textbooks and stuff. Well, as much as you can say we, and don't say I, and don't say you, but This book is about a totally different, and it's not even, I think the other thing too is this book is not about how one is the answer or I is the answer or they, right? It's about how moving among the I and the they and the one at specific points in the poems. Mm -hmm. It's the movement among these different subject positions that really brings out the aliveness and the counterintuitive beingness of the subjects that are that are the speakers as you say in the poems. Okay. It's not about like oh if you say one then you have captured and and this is a bad habit we have of turning specific words into the solution to a problem of collective being. And that's not what this is. It's every poem needs its own close reading, but the pronoun shifts seem to be a very fundamental way in which the poems are doing their
2: work. Mm-hmm. Yes that it. It, it it's in uh, some listeners might even think um part of what many poems, not all poems, but at least poems in the lyric tradition, but even poems that might not be called lyric what's at the heart of the poem is this matter of voice that there is a voice mm. in the poem that is reckoning or speaking of or speaking out or speaking to or maybe just even speaking, and that there's something about the The potency of that act, not only what the voice may be saying, but trying to pay attention to the dynamics of um, the the manner of the saying or that the voice is saying, that I think is really powerful. And you can hear echoes of some of the, the discourses, political and social discourses of, say, Black movements for resistance, right? This idea of voice and how powerful that is. And so I certainly want to. Uh, recognize the relationship between that. But I also want to recuperate the, again, the, the philosophical and the kind of spiritual register of, of what it is to to, sp- to have a sense of what do I feel and think and how powerful and animating that question can be as an honest question of self-interrogation, which is in some ways what I'm implicitly saying happens through, uh, if you think closely with some of the poems.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really do love the how the the payoff of the labor of close reading in this book. I've read a couple of books that are like, oh, we definitely need to close read because it, it helps us theorize relationality and ethics. And it's like, then you read the book and you're like, well, maybe. But this really like performs the argument it's making, which I can't even imagine the attention to detail you must have as a writer. Mm. <laughs> the mm. fact you've written four books of this quality is astonishing to me. Mm. So, uh, do you want to give up a, a poem? I thought maybe the Lucille Clifton that you opened the book with, or did you maybe want to go to another example? No,
2: no, no, no. Let's. I, I the, the Clifton poem opens the book because, as I say, I can think of no better example of aliveness than this poem. So the poem is. Um, It's by Lucille Clifton, um, uh, iconic uh, black woman poet. Uh, It's from her 1991 collection, uh, Quilting. And the poem doesn't have um, a name, but it's often referred to as reply because reply is the first word after the kind of paratext or epigraph, a a quotation from a letter that opens the poem. So I'm gonna read the poem as it exists. But I want to acknowledge um, that the shape of it, if, if people aren't, don't have the text in front of them, there's this chunk of a quotation from the letter. And then there's this long line of the reply, which is Clifton's contribution um, in the poem. So, um, and there is a little bit of harshness in, in, the, in the beginning quotation. Um, from a letter written to Dr. W. B. Du Bois by Alvin Borquist, of Clark University Massachusetts and dated April 3rd 1905. Quote, we are pursuing an investigation here on the subject of crying as an expression of the emotions and should like very much to learn about its peculiarities among the colored people. We have been referred to you as a person competent to give us information on the subject. We desire especially to know about the following salient aspects. One, whether the Negro sheds tears, end quote. Reply, he do, she do. They live, they love. They try, they tire. They flee, they fight. They bleed, they break. They moan, they mourn. They weep, they die. They do, they do. They do. Oh, Lord, this poem. It is, um, it is an astonishing poem for me to see on the page as it is a poem for me, an astonishing poem for me to read. One of the things I love about this poem is that it might seem simple, and indeed maybe it is simple if we recast that word to mean a thing that has a kind of astonishing ordinariness to it. Um, But there is such beautiful music, not only in the two beatness of he do, she do, they live, they love. Not only in the fact that the pronoun case moves from the, the singular third person, he and she, in a kind of normative way to this they that then becomes evocative of of a. Of a, of a capacity, of an articulation of something. Um, uh, not only that the speaker doesn't say, we might imagine that if, if we think of the speaker in this poem as speaking back to the letter, that is speaking back to the anti-Black hatefulness that allows such a question to be asked, we might expect the speaker to say, we do right? Mm. To incorporate themselves. But there is something stunning in the fact that Clifton's speaker, and I don't want to assume, we should be careful as ever assuming that the speaker in the poem is the same as the writer. So there's something powerful for me that the speaker says, he, she, they. That the speaker sustains the idea of looking on this group, which is not unlike what the letter was asking. The letter was asking. Uh, the letter was an attempt to look and to look poorly at at uh, black people, and was asking Du Bois to report on his looking at black people from the sense of distance. And yet, the speaker here seems almost marvel in trying to cast the world of everything that this these people do including the fact that the speaker seems to acknowledge the impossibility of ever capturing it such that the they do, they do, they do at the end becomes in that repetition, almost like an ellipses, right? Those three dots, almost like a, and so on, and so on, and so on. Here is the world where people live and love and try and tire. And I love the way in which the words are paired through alliteration and through assonance, such that live and love are paired, tie and tire and try, flee and fight, and then flee picks up on bleed, so that this isn't this random list. Right. When I said earlier that there's a um, Clifton's poetics sometimes read as if they are simple, but there's such care in trying to respond to this impossible question, impossible because it's hateful, impossible because even responding to it, it's asking you to do what cannot be done, which is to describe the world of Black doing. And so I love, I start with this poem because I, I, I sense in its aesthetic, I read in its aesthetics, um, a, a kind of world-making, what I just said about the way in which the speaker positions themselves as as describing the world as if they are the MC of this world. Um, uh, and I also love the the care of the repetition um, and how it refuses the terrible question and instead pursues a, a, a description, a potential description, a beginning description of the the rich, full um, lives and liveliness, the aliveness of this day. Who do? Who do? Who do?
1: Yeah and it's interesting too how re- refusing to answer the question but also I find the word weep here really fascinating because it's the last noun
2: mm-hmm.
1: or the last verb rather the last they word. weep but it's the one most closely related mm-hmm. to tears and so there's this way in which she brings you through every all these other things that they do and and you can't tell if they do them with tears or if it's a deferral in saying like, no, we need to look at these things before we look at tears and then chooses the weep as the teary word. I, yeah. I mean, this, is, I mean, and you think about how short this poem is. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. astonishingly dynamic. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, I mean, right. You're pointing us to, right. The possibility of even thinking about a temporal sequentiality in the poem such that um, moan, mourn, weep and die might seem like, um, an end of life sequence to some, to some mm-hmm. extent, except that we know that moaning and mourning and even weeping, in and of themselves, are not only of a negative register. Right? You think right. of someone like Fred Moten or people who study the spirituals, who tell us about the the power and complexity of the moan and so on. And so there's there's so much happening in this poem, or better said, this poem opens up the possibility for one who takes its invitation seriously to read with and to revel in all of what it offers. And that indeed is, that's the nature of its aliveness, right? Here we are, you and I on this day, engaged in this slim poem and uh, animated by the many things that are happening. And somewhere in the world, another person, and somewhere in the world, another person, and somewhere in the world, five more people might indeed be also encountering this poem and reveling in things that they recognize, feeling things that they can't articulate. And I think that's the power of the invitation that I think Black text potentially offers to each of us, but especially in this book, I wanted to say, what does it mean to imagine that it's offering that to a black reader and what does that do then for how we think about this the idea of aliveness
1: well and it's it's a reply to a reply to her so I'm replying to so I'm replying to yes. Clifton by, by working through her yes. who's replying on behalf of Du Bois to the person who queried yes. Du Bois for a reply and of course we don't know Du Bois's reply because it gets displaced on the Clifton who gets displaced onto me yes so yes. it's really I mean it's a really fascinating setup I've, I've never seen a poem do this and again I'm not a poetry Critics. So this was really fun for me to, to learn. I, I mean, I knew some of the poems, but I hadn't worked through them. So with you as my guide to work through them. I mean, I really, they were wonderful. And I will say I'm one of those people who likes the criticisms of poetry and literature more than I typically like them by themselves. Mm. So it was wonderful to have you take me through these poems. I mean, mm. I really... I'm grateful to the work that you did. Uh, you used the word capacious a lot uh, in the introduction, and I just h- latched onto this word because it does seem to be the word other than aliveness that is not the way that Black subjects are typically positioned when we think of them mm-hmm. as literary or artistic subjects, right, They're compi- they're positioned as like superficial or only style or naive or, or flat, like Sula, for example. Um, but you want to say like, no, part of aliveness is using language to construct these subjects as infinitely capacious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that before we maybe move on to another example.
2: Yeah, part of it is, is um, one runs into a word and think, oh, I like the work this word can <laughs> yeah. do. And also, I, I just like the kind of sonic quality of the word, but I think yeah. also the way in which, I mean, I think you've identified it, but the way in which to to go back to the idea of capacity and to press on the idea that there's this open capacity in the human, in the black human, and, um, and part of what I think I'm also trying to, I, I said earlier as I say at the end of, I think, chapter four about, right, that in every human is this profound uh, tremendous intelligence. So I am, and and I don't only mean intelligence as such resonates with the idea of the academy, right? Intelligence lives in the human beyond the 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 small way which the academy imagines that it can identify or cultivate intelligence. And so I am. I think I'm trying to gesture to that um, another word that I love to that voluptuousness of being, which doesn't mm-hmm. only mean that it's beautiful or good. It means that it's severe and simple, it means that it's ordinary and everyday, and it, it means that all of that lives in every human being. And so I say capacious because in the same way that Lucille Clifton's very slim poem opens up twelve minutes of you and I thinking with, which could be twenty four minutes, which is in the world of people thinking with this poem. Days and hours of of time that's That's the capaciousness of it that's the mm. um that if you go there, there is a whole world or maybe even a whole universe there and if i If I think about this book as being um either a love letter or a gift to myself, to my young self, even um and imagine that if someone else reads it, who's also black, that it is a gift to their young self, then what I would want any young black person's self to have is the gift of believing that the world there is and could be yours, not exclusively yours and not yours to do harm with, but yours in which to try to figure out how to flourish. And um, I, I mean, I don't mean to be too precious about it, except that I think what what literature and language and art offers us is the chance to, to go there. And so that's part of what I'm trying to do. Um, you asked. I me think- go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. Oh I-
1: no, I was just gonna say, uh, and it's and you know as a as a white woman reader, I, I think the 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 way you structure the book is important because I kept wanting to center myself as if like as if these poems about these subjects and these speakers somehow were a lesson in like how I should live because that's how we think about what we're supposed to do with art and having to continually like decenter myself it was really interesting. And and I think important because obviously I don't relate to the book the same way that you might relate to the book, the way that a different listener might. And it it was hard. I mean, I will admit, I kept wanting to think of this as like, I mean, Kenneth Burke, who's like a big person in the rhetoric field, he has this, this phrase as literature for equipment for living, but of course, well, living for who, right? It's for white people. And so trying not to turn these poems into that for me was really challenging, but I Mm -hmm. think a productive positionality because obviously the worst thing we could do is just turn these into universal lessons and how to be alive when it's not really what they are because I don't have the obstacles to the voicefulness of the poems that make them what they are.
2: Mm-hmm. And I yeah, think, I mean, so. I think that's a, I could have written a book that might've addressed precisely what you've just said. And I'm worried to have written that book. I might have said that I would, if I'm to give instruction to someone who's um, non-black and encountering black literature, it would be an instruction to say, do both. That is to, to find yourself reading with a carefulness and a mm. caution about how you co-opt, potentially co-opt the, the voice of the text and allow yourself also to surrender into the text because by virtue of your reading, even reading mm. with caution and care, what you are having is a relationship with the text. And I think, indeed, I might even say that if I'm talking, when I'm talking in class and I imagine I try to, imagine that the ideal student in my class is um is someone who's black and because my idea of blackness is always a gendered blackness um right who might even be black and might be gendered female or might be gendered non-binary and so on that um and I might want to say something about uh why I don't talk about people in this project and didn't want an image of a person on the cover. Um mm. but in trying to idealize that my instruction becomes read this as if it is yours and read this with the care of knowing that it's not right because I think we don't want to collapse the distance between the very specific life that was Lucille Clifton's that produced then the body of work that Clifton produces as if it is also my life or I'm gendered uh, a cisgendered male as if it's the life of any or every black person who's gendered female, because I think that does a kind of um that's a dangerous practice, right? Yeah, and so that's that doesn't offer the capaciousness. So I think I think the in this book, I wanted to say, so often in the history of u s American literary studies, when we read black literature, we read it for what it might say about blackness. And in so doing, we're reading it for what it might teach an audience about black people's humanity. And in so doing, we're reading as as if the ideal reader is supposed to be white. And I don't Mm. want to read in that way. And so once I've said that, I say, well, we're in a black world and I'm speaking as if to a black reader, but that doesn't exclude the possibility that as you or someone else who's not Black can read and have their own dynamic relationship with not just the the works I cite, but also with my own grappling with the works I cite. So I think this is precisely the thing that I think um, the the nuance and complexity that sometimes goes missing in our conversations about how do we orient ourselves in the world vis-a-vis each other and vis-a-vis these very horrible legacies of uh, of anti-Blackness, of misogyny, and so on. And we need to have these conversations so that we can be in better relation with each other.
1: Yeah, and I like your, your re-theorization of relation is not a dissolving into the other, but what do you say at some point? You say being prepared and open, or I'm sorry, I'm getting the, ver- the the words wrong, but it's something about being ready and also being... Uh, vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, I what? wish I could remember. But yeah, you're you're not saying like relation the way we normally think of like a, a consubstantiation, right? That mm-hmm. I am like you, mm-hmm. and so we share a universal experience. But actually, being open to the fact that your experience as one could could encounter another yes. one, and you're both still one.
2: Yes, that's right. But you're not.
1: Right. You're not. I. That's
2: <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That, yeah. I. I. Um. I think you're thinking on page 21, where I say I read aliveness as a term of relation where the focus is on one's preparedness for encounter rather than on the encounter itself. Right, in this way, to be in yeah. relation is to be in the embodied sociality of one's readiness. The, the, even the, the explicit um, uh, simplicity of being prepared to have this conversation with you today made me have to think, how do I feel what do, I feel, what do I feel capable of? What kinds of strengths do I think I'm bringing to this conversation? What kinds of things am I anxious about? What kinds of things am I excited about? And that preparedness, it might not mean we might have a good interaction, but that astuteness to my preparedness reminds me of my capaciousness, right? And I think, again, we're talking in terms of people, but I'm trying to use these idioms of talking about human life as a way to think and conceptualize ideas for thinking about aliveness.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. (coughs) Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person.
1: Well, and speaking of thinking about specificity, I appreciate you taking the detour into positioning me as a reader, because, you know, it's, it's always interesting, how do I engage you engaging the text without overlooking the elephant in the room, but also not centering the elephant as the most important question. Uh, but getting back to the specifics, since that's where we kind of want to live, is there another poem in the book or another aspect of the argument you want to jump into now?
2: Mm yeah maybe there are two things i might want to say just in terms of trying to introduce listeners to the project one is that um some of your listeners might be familiar with the term black pessimism or afro pessimism which as a Body, a a theory or a school of thought, scholars like Frank Wilderson or Jared Sexton are are readily identified with Afro-pessimism. And Afro-pessimism is a school that wants to, um, begins with the idea that the anti-Blackness is foundational to the formation of the modern world, and that in some ways a state of non-being is endemic and essential to Blackness. And it's a very provocative uh, school of thought. Um, the, the The idea of non-being connects with the idea of death or social death, as the sociologist Orlando Patterson describes it. And I find it generative and powerful, even though in arguing for or trying to explore the idea of aliveness, I don't think of myself as being one who follows that the the logics of that argument, and I just wanted to say that because I think that's part of what I was gesturing to in the very beginning, where I say the ways in which death um, circulates a lo- around how we think and talk about blackness, both again in a kind of historical, historically real way, but also in a conceptual way. And I don't mean to be naive about the the profound ways in which you know terror marks so much of black living. But I want to be careful about not speaking about people because I think there's a certain kind of idealization that happens there, right So, for example, I said earlier you had asked me in a in an earlier conversation, Lee about the cover, and it was really important for me that whatever whatever shape this project would take or whatever the cover might look like, that it not have an image of a figure of a person because I think um I think there's something unconscious about the way in which certain ideations of what Blackness looks like, and in this case, what Black aliveness looks like, that I didn't want to gesture to any of those ideations, that I, if I'm saying the thing is capacious, then I really want for any person coming to the book, and certainly for any Black person coming to the book, to be able to ideate themselves, for either themselves or ideate for themselves, Um what Black aliveness might look like as such is embodied. And that was really, really important to me. So I wanted to say those two things. Um, Part of of this project, if I can be really honest, is really trying to think about the ethical question, that question how to be. And part of this for me is that um, if you are alive, you are always feeling and thinking about how you are as a way to navigate how you might be next in a literal sense of how you are in the moment you are doing the dishes which might animate what you do next but also in a philosophical sense and sometimes I, I sometimes I worry that the our attention to the ethical possibility for black folks or for thinking, ethically in regards to Blackness is circumscribed by the fact that the world itself is oriented so unethically towards Black life that it seems as if the ethical is not a viable question. And I understand that, right? I understand that in a world, in an anti-Black world, there is no ethical figuration for one who's Black because because one who's Black does not exist or exists as non-human or inhuman or less than human, etc. And yet, those of us who are Black, we live, we're human. And so we are called, as the human is called, through whatever intellectual or religious or just ordinary tradition, we're called to think about how to be. And so for me, the um, thinking about aliveness and ethics, chapter five, beginning with this beautiful thing that Toni Morrison said about her character, Setha and Beloved. Morrison says, if you remember Beloved, Setha, a um, uh, uh, formerly enslaved Black woman who escapes to the North uh, uh, and as a fugitive, realizes that her um, the people who presume to own her are coming to recapture her and her children, and rather than have her children be recaptured. Re, um, re-inaugurated into that horrible life of um, slavery, Setha tries to um, kill them all, and she succeeds in in harming, um, hurting, maiming um, uh, one child and killing another. And Morrison says, it was the right thing to do, but she had no right to do it. Mm. It was the right thing to do, but she had no right to do it. So I, I start by thinking about the complexity of what Morrison means by recognizing that Setha is an ethical subject in an unethical world, right? It was the right thing to do. She had no right to do it. And I use that at, to think with other works, including Toni Morrison's Sula, a work that's so important to how I live in the world, how I come to think about um, ideas in my professional and personal life. Um, These moments in Sula where the character, a Black woman, is trying to meditate on what goodness is and trying to isolate the specific right of her, Sula, as a Black woman, to study and think and feel through her life, to study and think and feel through her life and that word study is really vital to me because i think again i think the academy might presume that to have a lock on what studying means but mm. i think of studying as simply the any practice of, of a human being engaged in trying to pay attention to something and in that paying attention to something what it offers to that to that person and so that chapter which Thinks with not just Toni Morrison, but um, some works by Lucille, some poems by Lucille Clifton, um, a poem by the poet Ross Gay, and another by Tracy K. Smith. That idea of the ethical how to be and not a respectability how to be. This isn't about a norm how to be. This is about the preciseness um, and the gorgeousness of sitting and trying to study with and through and in. Your being.
1: Hmm. R- right, because, uh, yeah, I mean, what's really fascinating about Sula, and I. I- Sula obviously, for a lot of reasons, comes up in tons of these books. Like, oh, not not these books. I'm sorry, I should have just that. But any book in, engaging in this similar questions that I've interviewed, mm. Sula kind of always comes up, and everyone reads her a little differently. And I particularly like this reading because what is very, and you say you don't like the word radical. You use it occasionally, but always kind of with a caution, right? Mm. But what is radical, for lack of a better word, in Sula is is not that she's. Morally just, but mm-hmm. that she is willing to do, that she's able to think herself in this multi dimensional capacity because it's been, you know, because in theory it should be denied to her as a subject. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Morrison I think you did a great a, job with this reading. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Thank you for saying that. Morrison has this gorgeous line, right, about Sula and Nell that neither one of them was male nor white. And so, um, mm-hmm. so that all the possibility was supposed to be closed to them. And yet, both. Young girls, young black girls, realize that the world it presumes that they should be nothing, which actually then opens up the possibility for them to to say, "Okay, I'm going to invent this thing as I most feel it, as I most think I understand right. it through the intelligence of what I know." Yeah, Sula is Sula can be such a complicated face for people because if you know the novel, she she acts in ways that seem somewhat immoral or somewhat self-absorbed, and yet, as I try to show in the book, I think Sula is busy trying to think about how to be, rather than trying to rely on a set of rules, either from an anti-Black world or even from a normative Black community that would to tell um, people who are Black and gendered female about certain ways in which they should act or certain ways in which they should carry their body or feel in their um, full uh, sensuality and their full uh uh, vibrancy um sula is trying to figure out how to be in the world in a genuine way and and presuming that other people are genuinely trying to figure out for themselves how to be in the world such that she would meet you as a one and you would also be a one in the meeting um it's, it's an astonishing book i i love that book um and love what I what I continue to learn from it after all these years.
1: Well, it's also fascinating because you're reading Sula so that I can read Sula is an exercise in me preparing to meet Sula mm. the way that you want us to think about one meeting one instead of me coming at her with sort of these mm. moral, that are of course, Western and patriarchal and white Indo-European, mm-hmm. right? So um, rather than coming at her with universal, quote unquote, morality that is seeped in anti-Blackness, I need to come to her prepared to encounter her as a oneness and not necessarily condone her actions or otherwise, but think through Mm -hmm. with her. And in that, it's sort of a really interesting relational engagement, right? Mm -hmm.
2: Yes. Yes. And I think, I mean, and I could say the same thing about me as someone who's Black and gendered male, right? That for the 20 plus years now that I've been thinking with that novel, that. My, my sustained preparedness to try to meet and encounter this character and encounter the worldview uh, and the, the philosophical um, standpoint that Morrison offers through that character is an act in my expanding my conceptualization of what blackness is. And this is another important thing for me to say, as as is true with the work I've done so far. Um, in my career, but also just true in my life that I've learned so much from Black women writers and thinkers such that I haven't only learned things specific to Black women's lives or what we might even call a Black feminist tradition. I certainly have learned a lot about that. But for me, if I'm interested in thinking about Blackness as an idea or as a concept or a notion, what Black women thinkers especially have invited me, to learn about that concept of blackness, um, whether it's through idioms like intersectionality, whether it's through um, what Morrison offers about the ethical possibility at the beginning of beloved. Um, I don't, you know, there's that uh, classic book, All the Women are White, All the Blacks are Men, but Some of Us are Brave, the kind of first anthology of black um uh, black women's studies. And I've always loved that title because of the way in which it recognizes the exemption and exception um, that is uh, in some ways black, theme, black women's conceptual existence. Notice I say conceptual, right? Because I always mm-hmm. want to remember that when we say things like Blackness and non being or Black women don't exist, I want to be careful for me that I'm always talking about the conceptual thing because in the world we live in right now there are people who are black and female and they are moving and they are struggling and they are doing beautiful things and they are doing ordinary things and i don't want the intensity of my um my scholarly or intellectual or professional language to ignore um the uh the the breath of what is the truth in the world um so uh, wanted to wanted to say that too this this project for me, Lee, as you know is is really about almost asking, so what is it to imagine that uh, as I say near the end of chapter five, in a black world, the black one can be like a poem that is, what mm-hmm. is it to imagine all of the ways in which a poem invites you into a world and, and invites you into unknowing, invites you into the beauty of sensation, invites you into the struggle to try to figure out and then the the gratitude to accept that you can never fully get it. What would it mean for that as a as an overture or that as a practice to be a way in which we conceptualize and approach thinking about blackness? And more than that, what would it mean for a person who's black in to, to see themselves as if a, 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 they are a poem through a poetic or as a sense of poesis, that they are the thing that is being made. I use the word thing um, there deliberately, not as an objectification, but as the, like, the materiality, right? Like I am the one being made by virtue of my being in the world um, and to take fully that invitation. And so that idea of Uh, Be like a poem, like the poetic inhabitants of Audre Lorde's argument, now I'm reading from um, near the end of the book, like the ambling of the speaker in the first person essay, who is random and brief and unyielding in commitment to the pursuit of a clarity that is never singular, never promised, always, always worth the pleasure and struggle of the doing. Mm. And then I say, um, yes, be like a poem, like Beulah in Rita Dove's poetry collection, Thomas and Beulah. She who's described this way, quote, like all art, useless and beautiful, like sailing in air, end quote. Has ever our normative language permitted Black female subjectivity to be, quote, useless and beautiful? Well. Regardless, be like that. Useless, beautiful, like a poem. Black mm. people are poems," said one writer, and then another said, "Black people, you are art. You are the poem. In a black world, the black one can be like a poem." So I think that's part of what the the that's part of the work that the project is up to.
1: Yeah. Well, so much there, <laughs> but I'm glad you introduced the word poesis because I was thinking, actually, as you were talking, that as the book moves, it moves further away from this language of becoming, which, which is exactly what you want, but it's so seeped in like this Heideggerian, like Ubermunch kind of tradition Mm -hmm. into poesis. And then you said the word poesis, right. As I was thinking about it. And I, I found that a really useful sort of displacement to move into poesis and as sort of a way of thinking about the particular kind of becoming you want us to think about. Uh, and what I really love is the Tony Cade Bambara poem. Um, uh, Well, it's not not her poem, but it's Nikki Finney's writing too. Yeah. It's really long, but it's like if there's anything that shows that poesis relationality, and it's done all through the metaphor of bringing her paper and in the subjunctive voice, which we haven't really talked about at all. And I found really fascinating, obviously, because I'm like a syntax nerd. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to read a little, I could read it or a little bit of that if you have it in front of you, or if there's a different poem you want to move on to just because. We could do so much, but I, I want to kind of pick a few of your favorites.
2: Um, I, I love, I mean, Nikki Finney, uh, just iconic, incredible poet um, at the University of South Carolina. Um, I love that poem. You're right. We didn't, we haven't talked about the subjunctive, right? That, that part of what I'm thinking about is all these occasions where poets and poems take up the subjunctive, um, that, that, um, that modal of, of speaking of possibility, like could, would, or even the subjunctive that, that's in the, the phrase if, as in as if, and how that's the language of possibility as Cydia Hartman names it. I love that poem. It's hard to just... Oh, maybe I'll just read the beginning Just of
1: read it, and... it. we got time. Okay. It's worth it. Nicky Finney's it. worth <laughs> us running a little long. <laughs> okay.
2: um, this is Nikki Finney's The Making of Paper. It's from the collection The World is Round. Um, it begins with uh, an epigraphic comment um, for Tony K. Bambar, 1939 to 1995. In the early 1980s, I spent two years in a writing workshop that the writer Tony K. Bambar held in her house in Atlanta every first Sunday. Anybody in the community who was writing was welcome. Students, bus drivers, carpenters. I adored the opportunity to sit at this great writer's feet. She knew so much about so much. She later moved to Philadelphia. She was later diagnosed with cancer. We talked on the long distance line when we could. I would always ask, was there anything she needed that I could send? She usually answered no. But in our last conversation, which took place one week before she crossed over. She held the phone a little longer. Maybe, she said, maybe you could send some paper. And what about one of those fat, juicy pens? All right, so here's the, and then the poem begins, although that's also part of the poem, right? The poem begins. Mm -hmm. Imagine that, you asking me for paper. For the record, let me state, I would hunt a tree down for you, stalk it until it fell all loud and out of breath in the forest. Much as I love a tree, fat, tall, and free, as anti-violent and pro-vegetarian as I am. Never much for strapping a gun to any of my many hips for any reason whatsoever, but on the copper penny eyes of my grandmother, I tell you this. I would hunt a tree down for you. And when found, I will pull it all the way down the road through congested city streets all by myself and deliver it straight away to your hospital bed. One single extra large floral arrangement, something loud and free with red and purple bow. Or better yet, this tree-loving, gun-hating Geechee girl would strap a Wild West gun-belt machete around her hips, enter the worst part of the woods alone, and go trunk to trunk until the right one appeared, growing peaceful in its thousand-year-old natal plot. Look at rights in its rough, round, ancient eyes and confess away. Tell it straight to its woody face, my about-to-do deed. I'd even touch it on its limbs. Fingers begging forgiveness. Give as much comfort to it as I could while trying to explain the necessariness of its impending death. Me standing there, my gorilla, my love eyes, spilling all over everything, sending up papyrus prayers that all begin with, I'm so sorry, but Tony K needs paper. Only then... Would I slash its lovely body into one million thin black cotton rag sheets, just your uncompromising size? Send you some paper? Oh yes, paper is coming, Tony Cade. Wagon loads in the name of your sweet black writing life, from black writers everywhere, refusing to leave the arena to the fools. Paper is on the way. tell me you you pointed us to that poem i'd love to hear some either something that in in encountering it now or in reading with my attempt to read it in the book things that that strike you about it lee if that's okay to ask
1: oh (laughs) okay uh yeah so again um I will say I'm not a poetry critic, but it's so a couple things. First of all, I like I like that in this one the addressee is very, very specific, right? Only Tony Cade gets the poem, mm-hmm. but Nikki writes on behalf of so it's so it's obviously about Nikki and it's about Nikki until it's about black writers everywhere. So I it inverts some of the previous, well not inverts, but changes it because the mm-hmm. addressee is so specific. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't belong to anybody else, but it is it does by the end become like a collection of writers writing to Tony Cade.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I thought that movement of the addressee is, or the, the, the non-movement of the addressee, but the movement of the writer is really fascinating. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it also made me think, right, if, you, if you read the poem, um, so the, the, her relationship to the tree, right? her apologizing the necessity mm-hmm. of its death, mm-hmm. is, is a vehicle for speaking to her love and appreciation for Tony Cade. But you can read it the other way, which is that there's a kind of way in which her relationality to Cade changes my relationality to nature which huh. i don't want to turn this into some like well let's just use black women writers as a metaphor for nature but i mean if you think about impending cr- climate crisis it, it's a different way to relate to trees and so it's interesting that in this poem that's where we see a relationality to nature that's very different from the consumption yes taken for granted object and i think they work i think there's a reason why you would find that kind of relationship to a tree in this kind of a poem yes
2: and that that relationality, yeah. right? And the, the invitation, if we think of the poet Nikki Finney, then creating a speaker who we might call Nikki in the poem, who is mm. grappling with this moment of trying to speak across the time and space of death, right? So that there's this profound temporality happen, happening because the speaker in the poem is speaking to someone who's no longer alive so th- that they are crossing thresholds in that way and mm. in doing that the, the invitation to be relational in that way almost advances a, a kind of a relationality that develops in regards to the tree in the poem because the poem starts with the speaker saying oh yeah i will get you paper i'll hunt a mm. tree down and then this kind of almost like a reflective like oh well let me let me pause on that for a minute let me Let me think about what it is to be related to this tree and this act that I'm going to do. And it's not romanticized as if to say, well, I can't now kill the tree, right? Mm. It is an astuteness. It is an ethical, I would call it. It's an ethical orientation that begins with thinking about who am I, how am I, and how should I be? And where those questions don't come from outside you. So there's something really precise about the work. This is a poem of profound labor, in a way that we might often be a little um, cautious about the word work because it gets co-opted by capitalist discourse. But the human works, not in any kind of ableist discourse of what do you have to show for it, but the body is all the while working and I too love, you know this because I write about this in the book. I love the way in which it begins with the subjunctive. Imagine that. So we and the subjunctive as a kind of imperative, right? We're invited um, as the speaker makes this expression through herself, the reader is invited into the first word, the first proper word of the poem is imagine that's an invocation for the reader to, to be like, okay, surrender what you think and be here now with this dynamic process. And, and it ends, um, uh, paper is on the way, right? Like it's just like the, the subjunctive becomes the achieved um, at the end of the poem, which I love. I just, I love so much of this poem as I love so much of, of Nikki Finney's just uh, output and work.
1: Well, and it, it echoes back to the Sula, which is, you know, her maiming <laughs> the children to prevent them from being enslaved. Sorry, is not, I've got my asses, is, is, is not the right thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. It's yeah. like in this poem, cutting down the tree is not the right thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. That's right.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's. I'm so glad you said that, right? Because I think so often when we think about ethics or morality, we might want to go um, as if as as if there's a definitive articulation of what the right thing to do is. But ethics is the practice of the question of how to be. Is the, is the staying with the question of how to be rather than the answer to that question, right? And so that my thinking about aliveness, and I guess one could say that about aliveness too. I don't imagine this book as being an answer to the question. I think of it as as one modest display of one person is trying to sit with um, thinking through iterations um, in, in these poems and in these other works as a way to try to grapple with what might aliveness be. And that humility is not... Um, Uh, I just used the word modest to describe myself, but that humidity is not a modesty of the human. It is precisely the excellence of the human that we can be humble in not knowing and use that not knowing as a way to open up the possibility to indeed know more.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, it's again, I I never like to praise. I don't know how to say this. I think we overemphasize the importance of like clarity in a book (laughs) Mm. Uh, because I don't want to say your argument is clear because I think that's not the greatest praise you can put. I mean, it's engaging and it's dynamic, but it, it, your through line is very tight, I guess is what I'll say. So Mm. the whole way I'm always kind of coming back to that question Mm. uh, in a way that's provocative and instructive Mm. and every poem changes it, Mm. but still answer. It gives some kind of provisional answer to what that might look like Mm. in textuality. Mm. Yeah.
2: I'm so grateful just for the chance to think and talk with you. Whenever I have the chance to talk about the ideas in the book, I really appreciate the way in which you have devoted energy and time before and now. There is a, a beautiful passage from Lord's uh, Essay Poetry is Not a Luxury the Opening Passage that I use as a way to theorize aliveness. And so maybe I'll just read that and then say one quick thing at the end, just as a means of offering to the listener another reference point for thinking thinking with my thinking in this book. So in her essay from 1977, poetry is not a luxury. this is how Lord begins the essay and I I'm not going to say much after it because I think it's just such a beautiful um, characterization but I use this this is for me the beginning point of trying to conceptually grapple with what I mean by aliveness, that I don't mean life, that I don't mean. All of the kinds of um, theoretical or biological arguments to be made, um, that I mean, this thing that I think Lord articulates. Lord writes The quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live and upon the changes which we hope to bring about through those lives. It is within this light that we form those ideas by which we pursue our magic. And make it realized. This is poetry as illumination, for it is through poetry that we give name to those ideas which are, until the poem, nameless and formless, about to be birthed but already felt. That distillation of experience from which true poetry springs, births thought as dream births concept, as feeling births idea. As knowledge births and precedes understanding, it's hard not to say any number of things about it. But I, I, um, I, I, I guess I stand somewhat reassured that I, um, I spend good time in the project thinking through some of what I think Lord sets up for us as a way to understand understand the body as a site of intelligence, not the body as split and different from the mind, but the body as a source of feeling and sensation, which is the same as thinking, that experiences and encounters knowing that we then produce as language and produce as the ideas that motivate how we move in the world and therefore motivates how we transform the world around us. And I love the... The absolute profundity of the gift of um, what we might call agency, but even agency seems too inept a word that Lord is offering to us is saying that in poems, there is um, uh, a discourse for understanding something about how we might better understand what it is to be human and alive and therefore to want to be in the world better so that the world itself is better. Um, I I, ooh, I, am astonished by that. And so that's why it was important for me in this project to spend time with thinking with poems and poets and poetics and indeed poesis. It was important for me to um, cite poems in full as much as possible to try to work with smaller poems so that the full world of the poem could be there and that I could, as a thinker and writer, could engage it, and that a reader could engage it for themselves and have their own experience of being with the poem. And I would also say that um, that, that humility of being invited into the knowing and unknowing that is a poetics. Um, my oldest sister, um, Cindy, um, was a poet and she lived in the world as someone who wrote and thought through the poetic regardless of whether she was recognized for that and as that and um, uh, unexpectedly and, and heartbreakingly my sister passed away uh, a couple months ago. Um, also unfathomably my mother um, passed away about uh, three and a half weeks after my sister, also unexpectedly. And mm-hmm. I know that in the world we are in, not just the pandemic world, but the world of such astonishing asymmetry and um, maldistribution of support and resources that lots of people have lots of difficulties. So I don't take my own to be exceptional, but I would want to say that I can't not think of my my sister in this moment of thinking about, um, this work of thinking with poems and poetry and poetics.
1: Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that.
2: Mm.
1: And I'm sorry for your loss. Even though when people say that to me, I say, "Well, thanks for nothing." But mm.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: you know, sometimes there aren't words, and cliches are, are what we do.
2: Mm-hmm. No, right. No, I feel it as a as a thing between us. So there it is. Yeah, this conversation indeed has been an opportunity to study, and I I thank you so much for it, Lee.
1: Of course. And I mean, one thing about this book, too, as we as we transition to close, I always like to let the listener know about the book's value to them. And in this case, of the many things that are amazing about this book and absolutely worth the investment, the footnoting you have done. I mean, it's like three PhDs in, just in footnotes. I mean, I, I even printed out the the notes, because I'm just going through and looking for things I haven't read or things I need to reread. And I, I just, I mean, the studying, you don't see it in the book. And you, you say this, that you're going to kind of create a clean through line of a specific theoretical trajectory, primarily through what we might provisionally call Black feminist thought, but that you've indexed your scholarly debt in the footnotes. And I mean, indexed you did. I, I Every time I thought, oh, maybe he hasn't read this, I would check the footnotes and there it is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So your, your studying is certainly a huge pay it forward in the form of the footnotes of this book.
2: Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Well, thank you
1: for doing the work. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, with that, I will just remind everyone we've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Kwashi, whose book black aliveness has just come off the presses of Duke University. And I cannot (laughs) tell you how much I have enjoyed reading this book. It's not only an excellent argument, its form is just a pleasure. I mean, a truly a pleasure to read. I've read it three times already. If you are interested in picking up a copy, please head over to bookshop.org or Duke University Press. And if you're not interested, one lovely thing that you can do is buy a hard copy, give it as a gift, give it to the public library. So in need of resources like this, requesting a copy for your university library or local library is another way to get this work out to people who, you know, don't have the resources to procure it on their own and would help us support presses and work uh, that is so important to the way that we think about our current reality and our future. Thank you for listening as always. If you haven't considered yet, please think about getting vaccinated and otherwise enjoy your summer. Thank you and goodbye.